turn with me in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as we continue to work our way through this very dense chapter. It's only 13 verses, um, but it's taking us three weeks to work our, our way, th- way through it. And um, this, this is a chapter that really has a lot to do in answering the question or dealing with kind of what is a church? At least that's that's in the background, and and churches have been defined in a lot of different ways, and perhaps people see the church as a bit of a smorgasbord. It's like, well, I like a little of this and a little of that, and you can probably find a church somewhere that will meet all of your um, desires. Whatever you want a church to be, there's probably somebody out there giving it to you. But we would probably hold to a basic historical understanding of what is a church. And to answer that question, we would affirm with what was, uh, I guess, coalesced or, or put together in the Belgic Confession, which said says that a church is where the pure gospel is preached, where the right observance of the ordinances or sacraments are observed, and where church discipline is practiced. Those three mark out what a true church is. It's interesting as we are in the book of 1 Corinthians where those three topics are dealt with in very clear unambig- in a very clear and unambiguous way. In chapter 15 when we get there someday we will get a very clear statement of what is the gospel. When we look at 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12, we see a very clear understanding of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And in chapter 5, we have a very succinct teaching on the issue of church discipline. So let me give you a little bit of review as we go through this material and uh, bring everybody up to date and then we will launch into uh, uh, into our text. But really, chapter 5 in, in uh, 1 Corinthians is really dealing with how does a church deal with unrepentant sin in it, within the community? Now, there is an instance of gross sexual immorality, and Paul's going to deal with that, but that's kind of in the background, because really Paul is mostly amazed that the church is not really addressing the matter. So, how does a church respond to unrepentant sin with within its community. In fact, Paul is amazed. We used the rather uh, British term uh, a few weeks ago that Paul is gobsmacked. He is amazed. He is flabbergasted. Not only that this act, this, this, uh, uh, this sin is occurring, but that the church is doing nothing about it. So he, he's appalled on two levels. Number one, how did this even happen? And number two, why aren't you doing anything about it? And much of what he's been dealing with is the church's response. Why aren't you doing anything about this? And so he, he's amazed, he's, he's flabbergasted that acceptance of such sin um, is, is being, uh, is, I was going to say, is being tolerated. And then he provides a bit of a remedy. And, and the remedy was really... Uh, well, the title of our message, Purge the Evil from Your Midst, and, and we'll get to that in a little bit more detail. But, but Paul says, remove this person. And then we saw last week, Paul highlights why this remedy was necessary, because it is no doubt extreme and very unpopular. By the way, this is not a popular message. Um, it will probably not get... Um, provide for many opportunities for conference speaking. And it is difficult. It's not something that any of us like to talk about. 
If we did not preach through the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter, um, we, I probably would rarely talk about this. But here we are. Paul highlights why this remedy that is remove this person from your midst is necessary. And the first reason he gave is, don't you realize that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Or in other words, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch? Don't you realize that a little bit of uh, a, a small virus will eventually affect a whole community? Maybe that is a more relevant and up-to-date um, example. Don't you realize just, just a little bit will infect everything? That's his first reason. His second reason for this remedy is, don't you know who you are? And this is much more positive. He, he gives this idea, he, he says, don't you realize who you are? You are purchased by Christ for His own possession, that you are born again, you are new creations, you are pure, you are holy, you are undefiled, you are set apart for God's glory. Don't you realize that? Now live in light of that fact. You guys aren't made for such defiled living. You are made. You have been created and, and born again and members of the kingdom. You are citizens of Christ, citizens of Christ's kingdom. You are heirs of God. Now live in light of those great blessings. And then his final admonition or reason why the remedy is necessary. He says, so let's go ahead and celebrate the feast. And this is really dealing with the Passover feast, which was celebrated once a year. And it celebrated their, uh, the, the Jewish people's um, freedom from slavery, from bondage, their redemption from bondage. And Paul now says, don't you realize, and we talked a little bit about the grammar, this is something you celebrate every day. You don't celebrate this once a year. Every day, celebrate the fact that Christ has redeemed you from the curse um, and condemnation that that, um, uh, comes from being unregenerate. And so celebrate every day. So that's kind of where we were. Well, not kind of. That's where we were the past two weeks. Here's where I want to go this week. So just a quick preview as to where we're going to go this week. And that is that Paul is going to provide some clarifying statements. And so some of the things that Paul has said have been misunderstood. So he's going to make sure that you that the Corinthian church and us understand exactly what he's talking about. This will be, a very, I think, a very relevant passage. Um, in other words, who is the subject of the church's attention? At least in regards to unrepentant sin. Um, and really, uh, unrepentant immorality. Who is the subject of the church's attention? And that's going to be a really important question because I think a lot of times uh, we get this really backwards. Um, and, and So we'll discuss that. Well, we won't discuss about it. I'll just talk about it for a while. And then Paul is going to return to his original focus of removing the sinful man from the community. And remember, removal is not simply punitive and to say, oh, look how righteous and holy and perfect we are, and you're not, you filthy dog. It is for restoration. All of these disciplinary measures are for restoration. Remember, the church is a self-cleansing organism. And so Paul is saying, listen, you need to take care of the body and so remove that infectious part that is going to do damage. Um, And the goal is that that individual will repent and be restored back into perfect communion and perfect fellowship. And uh, I personally believe in this particular case, the individual that is being spoken of um, was removed. But I personally believe that 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 2 speaks of this person's restoration. So um, the goal of all of these very um, harsh or extreme measures are for the person's good and restoration. So with that, 
Um, join with me as follow along as we read. I'm going to uh, once again just read the entire chapter 5 verses 1 through th- 13. Listen to the inerrant word of the living God. <clears throat> it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. As if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. So Paul begins verse 9 with, I wrote to you in my letter. Now you should say, wait a second. You mean Paul wrote another letter to the Corinthians? Yes, there is a letter prior to this one that Paul had written to the Corinthians church. So I guess that was really 1 Corinthians and this would actually be 2 Corinthians. And Anyways... There is another letter. And he seemed to write about the issue of sexual immorality. And, and so Paul's saying, don't you know I already wrote to you about these things? You know my view on these things. The Corinthian church is not ignorant. But now Paul is going to try to clarify some statements in case he was misunderstood. So you know my position on this. And they have failed, obviously, to heed Paul's words. And Paul is saying, well, maybe you've misunderstood what I said, so I'm going to make very clear what I mean. And in the previous letter, he wrote not to associate with the sexually immoral. And as we go through this, I'll I'll talk a little bit what we mean by that word associate, because that's really key. But let me just define what we mean once again, by sexually immoral, because we have, um, I, I fear that we are probably more influenced by culture than we are by God's word. So God's word is very clear in regards to a Christian ethic of um, sexuality. And it's very simple. God has prescribed sexual intimacy between a biological male and a biological female in the covenant of marriage, and that is it. That is it. Everything else would fall under this broad term of sexual immorality. And I know people say, well, you know, me and my boyfriend, me and my girlfriend, we really love one another, or we're planning to get married, or we're engaged, or we're two consenting adults. It's still sexual immorality under the covenant of marriage. And I won't go into great detail of every type of of act that falls under that broad term of sexual sexual immorality. Paul is going to deal a little bit more uh, with this as as we go through um, chapters 6 and 7. But that's just a broad view. Everything other than what I just stated, the one prescribed um, means by which, or environment under which God has um, 
given physical intimacy. Everything else falls under this term of sexual immorality. And what's going on in the Corinthian church is that uh, a man probably is living with his stepmother. That's probably what's going on. And Paul's saying, you know, this is of such a nature that even the pagans are saying, yeah, that's not right. I mean, when people outside the church are going, man, what's wrong with those people inside the church? It's bad. And, and Paul's flabbergasted that nothing's being done. So that's where he said, don't you know I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral? And then he makes a very important clarifying statement. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of this world. So, in other words, not the immoral people of this world. Paul is not speaking of um, disassociating from non-Christians who are sexually immoral or greedy or idolaters or uh, revilers or all of these other things. The sins listed in this verse were, are, were common in Corinth. Corinth was a a vile city. It was a very um, commercially prosperous city, um, but pretty much anything goes. It was a pretty much anything goes. Um, people lived their own autonomous life, and they adopted whatever philosophy or religion or worldview that they thought best suited them, and that was all okay. And so Paul is now saying, listen, I'm not talking about disassociating from unbelievers. I'm talking, and he'll talk He'll go on. I'm really talking about people who call themselves brothers. Here's the thing. Paul says it's impossible to completely disassociate ourselves with the sexually immoral or the greedy or the idolaters or the revilers or the drunkards or the swindlers of this world. Folks, these are people we live with every day. They, they may be in our own household. Your, your, your husband, your wife, your kids. We do business every day with ungodly people, people who are not believers in Christ. Every day, your boss, the merchants that we go and purchase things from. The individual who comes over to do work on your house. The doctor who performs a procedure on you. They may all fit into that category. Paul's saying, I'm not saying disassociate from them. First of all, you can't. Because they're everywhere. In fact, he says, then you'd have to go out of the world. And some people say, well, maybe Paul's talking about a different, going off to a different planet or something like that. I, I think the idea of this, this phrase is used to speak of death in some other Greek literature. And I think what Paul is saying is, you can't disassociate yourself from them. It, to do so would mean you'd have to die and go to heaven. So everywhere we go, we're going to be associating ourselves. We, in other words, we live in a corrupt and fallen world. That's basically the way it is. And that's just the way, that's just the way it is. And you'll note now that Paul does not limit this. Paul adds to, uh, adds a few other vices to his list. The topic here is sexual immorality. But then Paul adds a few other vices. The greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters. These would all be acts that use other others for one's own personal profit. That is really the opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself. I love myself and I will use you to achieve my own desires and my own personal ends. 
And if I need to rob you, if I need to scam you, if I need to step on you in order for me to get ahead financially, that's what I'm going to do. Paul is now putting the greedy and the, and the, um, and the swindlers and the idolaters into this list. The greedy are those who desire what you have and will defraud you to get it. They are covetousness. They are never satisfied with the things that God has provided. The idea of swindling, to be a swindler, has this uh, the connotation of one to is to see something, one who preys upon another. In other words, they will use you and especially the poor for their own personal gain. Idolaters would have this idea of unlawful worship, and that was rampant in Corinth. Corinth had all kinds of pagan temples. But let me also add in this idea of idolatry, it is not simply the um, replacing God, the creator of the universe, as our object of worship. And people might worship money or family, or there's all sorts of things we might worship. That certainly would be idolatry, but let me just add another biblical category of idolatry, and that is worshiping the God of the universe in a way in which he is not prescribed. So when we think of idolatry, we think of statues. We think of idols. We think of little figurines, perhaps, But idolatry in the Bible, and this would probably be much more um, pervasive amongst Christians, and that is worshiping God in a way in which he has not prescribed. The perfect example of this would be in Exodus, the golden calf. You'll remember Moses went up on the mountain. He was getting Ten Commandments, right? He was gone, and the people began to wonder about him being gone for such a while, And Aaron, the high priest, fashioned a golden calf. And he said, this is Yahweh who delivered you out of the land of Egypt. And they all began to worship this golden calf. They didn't think they were worshiping a golden calf. They thought they were worshiping Yahweh, represented as a farm animal and they were worshiping God, Yahweh in a way in which he had not prescribed we see this emphasized in the um, strange fire that was offered by Nadab and Abihu a little bit later and God took them out They were worshiping Yahweh in a way in which he had not prescribed. And so, this church, we follow what's called the regulative principle. I'm not going to get into that, but the general idea is is that God has told us how we are to worship him. And so, there are things that he has prescribed and things that he has not prescribed. We try to kind of stick with the things that he has prescribed. But that's kind of the idea of idolaters. And so both Paul's main point, let me get back to our text, Paul's main point is that both the sexually immoral and the money grubbers are equally sinful and need to be rebe- and need to be um, expelled from the community. In other words, abusing others for one's own advancement is not loving your neighbor as yourself and engaging in practices that God has condemned requires removal from the community. So, Paul's clarifying statement. I told you not to associate with sexually immoral people in a previous letter I wrote you. I'm not talking about people outside of the church. After all, they're the mission field. 
The gospel does not call us to retreat from the world, but to be witnesses in it. We are to let our light so shine before men that they see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. We are not to seclude ourselves into little cloisters where it's just us. We are to be in the world being missionaries and bearing witness of the great things that God has done. David Garland, in his very fine commentary on uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, said, Bad characters abound in the world. They are not to abound in the church. So, Paul's not saying... Don't disassociate yourself from the immoral of the world. They're the mission field. But I am talking about those who are rebelling against Christ and they're calling themselves as brothers and sisters. That's who we do not associate with. We'll talk about that here as we come up. So Paul now um, has made this clarifying statement and now he gets back in verses 11 through 13. He's going to get back to the point that he began in the very, in the first, um, really in verse three, in verse two, where he says, purge the evil, he advises to purge the evil from among you. Look at what he says here. I wrote to you in my letter, don't do this. But now, verse 11, but now I am writing to you. Now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. All right, so there's a lot here. Let's see if we can unpack this. Paul is like, now I'm writing to you. Here's what I want you to do. Do not associate with a person who claims to be a brother, and we'll just include a brother or a sister. Somebody who claims to be a Christian. Do not even associate. Well, now, there's that word. What do we mean by associate? And I'm going to give you some some definitions, and then we'll, we'll see a few examples as we go along. But let me also just... Um, kind of get ahead of your questions, I, I, I will not be able to answer every single what-if possibility that could come to mind in this. I'm going to give very broad terms, and then it does would require the Spirit of God to help us in each individual situation, because I can see after church, well, what about this situation? What about that situation? What if, what if this happens? It's like, oh, man. I don't know. I would need to know more context. So I'm going to talk about this idea of do not associate in very broad terms. And then when we get into some what ifs, um, we'll have to deal with those as we go along. But I think this will be helpful. This idea of association is a, is a rare word. Paul only uses it three times and twice in the, the verses we're looking at. And then... Once other, and I think it's in Colossians. It's only used a few times. And the idea is to mingle. or uh, And that would um, suggest a reciprocal relation or involvement. That's the general idea. I like the way Philo was a, uh, a Jewish philosopher in the uh, early first century B.C. And Philo used this word, associate, and it's a long Greek word, and it's a triple compound word, so we won't get into that. And you know I was tempted to. <laughs> but Philo put this word on the lips of Balaam. You remember Balaam, because we were just not too long ago in the book of Numbers. If not, you'll have to look up Balaam or go back to um, listen to those sermons about Balaam. And, and he puts these words on Balaam, which describes the Hebrews as not associating not mixing with the other nations whose pagan lifestyles will lead Israel to depart from Yahweh. This is really fascinating, the way that gets used. Now, I know Philo is not an inspired author, um, but, but I think he's helpful. 
not associating with the other nations. Because you remember Balaam came to curse Israel. That was his job. He was a hired gun, a hired prophet to put a curse on Israel, and he couldn't. God wouldn't let him. And Philo puts these words, these people don't associate um, their ethics, their, their, their lifestyles are different. Then you remember how did Balaam bring a curse on Israel? He couldn't curse them, but what did he do? He told Moab, he said, listen, if you want, I can't curse Israel. But if you want God to curse them, here's what you do. Send some of your single young ladies on over into the camp of the Israelites. And they will associate, they will mingle with them. And they will defile themselves and they will worship your gods. And as a result, God will bring judgment against them. That's the idea of association, I think. I hope that that's helpful. In other words, Christian believers are not to withdraw into separatist cloisters, but we are to make unwelcome any Christian who flouts the clearly prescribed ethics of the faith. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse 14 is helpful as well. Paul writes, and, um, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Then Paul goes on and writes, Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. In other words, the disassociation is a warning to the brother or to the sister that you are flouting God's commands, you are shaking your fist at God's commands, and we are not going to mingle With you. It is then to draw back from associations with unrepentant brothers. I'm sorry, to draw back from associations with unrepentant brothers or sisters testifies that the church has no dealings with behavior incompatible with the gospel. It's like, What we would do is we would be... I'm getting ahead of myself. So I'm going to... That was going to lead me down a big rabbit trail. I'm going to stick to my notes. That's why I have notes, so that we get out of here at a reasonable time. But this disassociation notifies the offender that the Christian God has no tolerance for violating his command. So this would be some sort of close association. And then you'll note that Paul adds two more sins. He's already given us a little bit of a vice list um, previously, and now he adds two more, a drunkard and a reviler. Drunkard, I don't think we really need to uh, go into detail. That's pretty obvious what drunkard might be. But a reviler is an interesting word because a reviler has the idea of one who goes behind somebody's back. Um, It is one who speaks rumor or lies to destroy another person's reputation. We call them gossips. In other words, even gossip. If this person does not repent, remove them. So Paul has a pretty lengthy uh, vice list going on here. He's not just, not only the sexually immoral, but the greedy, the money grubber, the drunkard, and the gossip. They do not repent. Remove them. Now, let me clarify, let me clarify. Paul, and therefore myself, I'm just going to repeat what Paul says, he is not addressing those who struggle with sin, but those who justify their rebellion and show no signs of being concerned that their actions are an offense to God. That is, that there is no repentance or no sorrow. If somebody goes off to the to a restaurant tonight and has dinner and has maybe a little uh, an, an extra glass of wine and they get a little inebriated and they're like, oh my goodness, I, I can't do that again. Or, you know what, if 
one is involved in a, a, a sexual relationship and they realize that, you know what, this is, this is wrong, I need to get out of this. That's not who we are talking about. If you happen to be involved in a little bit of juicy gossip, either pr- uh, promoting it or listening to it, that's not who Paul is talking about. This is one of the reasons why we've talked about the church being a self-cleansing organism. This is why every week we have a confession of sin because we're just, and we probably should confess our sins on a regular basis because we do. All of us are susceptible to, you know what, sometimes we might be a little greedy or covetousness. How come my neighbor has that really cool stuff and I don't? It's talking about the person who is in a continual state of rebellion against the holy God. And perhaps even people have gone to him and said, man, brother, sister, what are you doing? And they and they say, hey, listen, I'm good. I can, I can live however I want. This is the person whom Paul is dealing with. They are not concerned concerned that their actions are an offense against a holy God. There is no repentance. There is no sorrow. We were talking about that this morning. Sometimes, you know, we get in, in, in Alex's Bible study this morning that we get caught up in some things and then we, we feel like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I did that. Well, that's the Spirit of God convicting you of your sin. That's good. So, Paul is is saying the people who are engaged in these things on a regular basis and shaking their fist at God, even though it had been clearly, clearly displayed, this is who Paul is talking about. And then he says, do not even eat with such a one. I think that this then helps clarify this understanding of what we mean by associate. First, Paul says, do not associate. We gave you a little bit of a a definition of it. And then Paul says, do not even eat with such a one. The question is, what does that mean? That's a good, good question. And people have put forth the idea that, well, maybe this, what he's talking about is the Lord's Supper. And, And I would agree that certainly that is included. I don't think that is all of what Paul is talking about, but certainly would be included. You have to remember that eating together in the ancient world um, connoted much more than just friendliness. It created a social bond. So when Christians ate together, it reinforced and uh, and confirmed the solidarity established by their shared confession in Christ. In other words, when we are eating together, we are saying you are a faithful member of Christ's body and I'm a faithful member of Christ's body and when Paul is saying don't even eat with such a one you're saying I'm not certain where you stand with God anymore you say you're a brother in Christ you say you're a sister in Christ but I don't know where you stand anymore Godet put this in a very old commentary Um, I think he put this well he said um, by not eating with them, he said, this is the way to tear from him the mask with which he covers himself to the shame of the church and Christ himself. So refusing to eat with the unrepentant brother or sister was a break in social ties. And that would include the Lord's Supper. In fact, I would say the Lord, refusing the Lord's Supper is one of the ways that the church would tell the unrepentant individual that, listen, your actions are not right. And we are going to withhold the Lord's Supper until you've repented of your sins. That is both a merciful act, as Nelson explained, because you would be eating and drinking condemnation on yourself. So there is an act of mercy in the church saying no. But it's also to say, listen, your actions are displaying that you are not a Christian. Finally, Paul addresses this. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil evil person from your midst. So there's this idea of outsiders and insiders. And Paul says, "Um, I don't judge outsiders, those outside the church, that God's going to deal with them. And he will deal with them justly. 
maybe this is one of our, our big problems as a church, as churches, is we get these two ideas flipped. We're really big on um, condemning those people outside the church. Let's just look at those people. I can't believe that they're doing whatever. They're greedy. They're immoral. They're this. They're that. Oh. And we all get together and we say, oh, what horrible people. And we all feel good about ourselves because we're not like them. Paul's saying God will judge them. I have friends, and so do you, who say, hey, who are you to say anything about that? Uh, God will judge me. That's a true statement. That's a frightening statement. You don't want that. Now, I don't know, I don't think that Paul is saying that the church needs to silence its prophetic voice in in society. That is... uh, And what I mean by a prophetic voice is what did the prophets do? The prophets went to kings and to people who were in, who were rebelling against God and calling them to return. That's just called evangelism. So we do call, the church is to call men and women to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But as far as some sort of formal condemnation or I'm going to put you under some disciplinary action, God will deal with them. We are, however, to judge insiders. Christians, Christians, not just the elders of a church, have a say in what other Christians do. And I know we don't like that. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm autonomous. I'm my own person. Or as the Bible would say, am I my brother's keeper? Yes. The church is responsible for keeping the house in order. There is a shared responsibility. And Paul ends up saying, purge the evil person from your midst. I put in your notes a list of references from the Old Testament. This is a quote and or an allusion to what was what Moses told the people um, in Israel, expel the person. Expelling the man rids the church from the infectious virus that is going to spread and destroy the church if left untreated. It will remove the threat of hypocrisy that repulses a society. What is the number one complaint that you get from people about Christians in church? They're just hypocrites. Church discipline... <laughs> is one of the means by which we can say, no, we've purged that from our midst. Tertullian was a, a second century, late second century church father, kind of an interesting, somewhat odd character, but we owe a great debt to him. Anyways, he challenged his detractors. He said, find one immoral person within the Christian community. <laughs> wow. He silenced the critics. Imagine that. Oh yeah, you think there's a bunch of hypocrites in our church? You come to our church, you find one person. (laughs) They just look at the pastor and say, well, you got problems. But it removes the threat of hypocrisy that repulses a society and it removes the threat of divine judgment for our toleration of evil. We're, we're simply saying that, listen, these things come into the church and what we're saying is, is that we as a church oppose these things just as the outside world would say, you got greedy people in your church. And we'd say, yes, we do. And we've dealt with that. It's not hypocrisy. We've dealt with that. So let me just give a, a, a brief little synopsis of um, church discipline. And I'm praying, I, I might do a, an entire sermon next week kind of going off track, a topical series on the issue of church discipline. I'm, I'm praying about that because it's such an important issue and it's an issue that we just don't deal with that often in the church. But let me say a few words about church discipline. First of all, church discipline is only finds any relevance except within meaningful church membership. That without meaningful church membership, church discipline doesn't really make much sense. Many want to come to church, 
glean what they can with no thought of being accountable or having any responsibility to the congregation. That's just not the way a church operates. Church membership means accountability. When you join a church, you are saying to the church, I want to live holy before God. I want to come alongside you, and I want to hold you as a church accountable. And I want you to hold me accountable. So that when we stand before God one day, the work that God has done through us will withstand the test of fire. We are going to uphold one another. We are going to stand with one another. We are going to be accountable and responsible to one another. Church discipline really only makes sense within the context of some form of church membership. In other words, if somebody just enters our church today and is visiting or has been here once or twice, it's like, do what are we going to? What are we going to purge? It says, "Purge the evil person from your midst." What are we going to purge? You're visiting. Probably never see you again, anyways. But your church, wherever you have accountability. Um, They need to hold you accountable. When it comes to discipline, we we don't mind discipline so much as long as it's self-discipline. We're fairly comfortable with that idea. In other words, I'm in a field of study. We might even call that a discipline. Or I have a, a goal to lose X amount of weight and I'm going to discipline myself to exercise and eat certain foods and do certain things and improve myself. Or I'm going to learn a new language. Or I'm going to, We like this idea of self-discipline. Here's what we don't like. We don't like being disciplined from an external source. Who died and made you the boss of me? That's what we don't like. And this is church discipline where an outside and external force comes along or an external authority comes along and says, Christ died and we are one, we are brothers and sisters and brother. There's a problem. Jonathan Lehman in his very, very interesting book, The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love, um, writes this. He has a great way of stating things. For the average person in Western culture today, every attachment is negotiable. We are all free agents, and every relationship and life station is a contract that can be renegotiated or canceled, whether we are dealing with the prince, the parents, the spouse, the salesman, the boss, the ballot box, the courtroom judge, or, of course, the local church. I am principally obligated to myself and maximizing my life, liberty, and the pursuit of my happiness. I retain the power to veto everything. And so when we get uncomfortable, we just veto the church and say, I'm just going to go somewhere else. It's not the way the Christian church has been set up, the local church. Church discipline, let me remind you, is not designed to harm but to help. The church is to be a self-correcting organism. And once again, let me remind you, we have probably two different types of church discipline. We would have informal and formal. Informal is probably what we're doing right now. Informal, as we've discussed over the past few weeks, involves a cup of coffee sitting down and saying, how how you doing, brother? How you doing, sister? Well, I'm not doing too well, man. I've been really struggling with with, with my tongue and the gossip. It's like, let's pray for one another. Let's I'll tell you what, let's hold one another accountable for the next week. Let's meet every week and pray with one another over this. It's like, yeah, I could really use that. That's church discipline. It's what we call informal church discipline. It happens every Bible study, every time, mostly every time we get together and and... So all of us have faced church discipline at some point. Then there's formal church discipline where the church gathers and purges the evil person from our midst. And that's usually come after a lengthy period of informal church discipline. Informal where we're going to the person, we're talking to the person, we're sharing scripture with the person, and they keep saying, no, I will not obey God. I see what God says, but I will not obey it. I will not obey it. I will not obey it. And eventually the church says, fine, we will convene basically a courtroom and we will purge the evil person from our midst. Church discipline is not designed to harm, but to help another. 
Now, I realize maybe one of the big complaints about church discipline is because it's been, do, been done so badly in the past, and there are multiple examples of it being done poorly. But the answer to poor church discipline is not no church discipline. The answer to poor church discipline is proper church discipline. So just because it's done poorly does not mean we say, well, you know what, it's been, it's been abused, so I'm not going to have anything to do with it. No, the answer is, what does the Bible say and how do we, to the best of our ability, Paul gives us the right attitudes in Galatians chapter 6, 1. What is the attitude we should have? We should be humble. We should know that these things can befall us too. We are not to be arrogant and proud as though, look at me, I'm somehow better than you. No, it is one of humility. It is one of fear. Because it's like, this is a hard thing to do. It is a it is an unpleasant task. Let me tell you, if anybody takes joy in church discipline, maybe church discipline needs to come to you. That's just a bad place to be. So it may have been done poorly, but that doesn't give us the right to say, well, I'm not going to do it. <clears throat> John Ledley Dagg, a guy, if you're interested in church history, you should read or read about. Fascinating character. But he says this, It has been remarked that when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. Well, this is a very difficult topic. I hope that I have handled it well. Let me give you a few concluding remarks, and then we will sing our final song, and then we will eat. Um, also, before I give my benedic- our benediction, I'll give some announcements. So remind me because I'm, I'm out of order and I'll probably forget. So just a couple of concluding remarks. The church is the bride of Christ and we should reflect the one to whom we are betrothed. This is the bride of Christ. You, Paul says that you, the Corinthian church, and I think by extension all local churches are the te- temple of the living God. So we are the bride of Christ. We are betrothed to Christ. We should reflect the beauty and the glory and the splendor of the one to whom we are betrothed. Jesus made us new creations. He made us holy. He made us blameless. He made us pure. And all by his sufficient work on the cross, church, church on Randall Place, let us live out who we are. Let's stand and we will sing uh, our final song.